The Buddha taught that the mind is the forerunner of all things. And I'm sure it's not difficult for any of us to see very directly in our own experience the ways in which all of our thought, all of our words, all of our acts, all of our choices, our thoughts, are born of the mind. And I think it's very important also just to mention that in this tradition, mind and heart are words that are used interchangeably. So not used as being separate dimensions of our being. So when we speak about mindfulness, we could also speak about heartfulness. To understand the mind is also to understand what we usually conventionally refer to as our heart. I think in understanding the power of our mind and the power of all the minds in this world, we can also understand really the importance of understanding this mind, of knowing this mind. And particularly also then on the base of that knowing and understanding, understanding the ways truly to cultivate a mind of kindness, a mind that is imbued with loving kindness and with wisdom and with compassion. The Buddha once said, who is my friend? He said, my mind is my friend. He said, who is my enemy? He said, my mind is my enemy. The mind that is collected, rooted in understanding what is true, the mind that is steady and clear, this mind is truly at a genuine friend in our lives. Trustworthy, creative, insightful, loving. The mind that is able to investigate, to reflect, to communicate. The mind that is pervaded with loving kindness. This is the mind that is the greatest friend in our life. It is a mind of kindness. And in truth, this is the kind of mind we're actually engaged in cultivating here. A mind that is not only a, a friend, but a mind that is also a benefactor to ourselves and to others. I think we can probably all relate also at different times to the Buddhist statement when he said, Who is my enemy My mind is my enemy. We all know what it feels like to be actually tormented by our own minds. We all know the kind of anguish and struggle and uh, unease, disease that we can experience within our own minds. And in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha encourages us to contemplate the mind inwardly, to contemplate the mind externally, outwardly. Because when you look around you in this room, you actually know that there is no one in this room, no one you have ever met who is exempt, has been exempt in the past, or will be exempt in the future from hardship, from sadness, and from heartache. We come here, we all have our own stories of loss and disappointment and fear and adversity. And we all, too, have our stories of happiness and joy and intimacy, the qualities we all long for. It's part of our story, it's part of the human story. And if you look around you in this room, the other thing you know is we all have a mind. We all have a mind. I also feel relatively confident that if I 
extended the invitation for anyone to come up here and take their seat in front of the microphone during a sitting and just relay through the sitting everything that was going on in their mind, you know, a blow-by-blow description. Now, most people actually would turn down the invitation. You know, they'd feel horrified at the thought because they'd be so sure that their mind must be worse than everybody else's mind here. I mean, would you not feel that? And yet, it's more than likely that if you took up that invitation, if anyone was brave enough to take up that invitation, instead of looking out and seeing all these horrified, appalled faces, you'd probably look out and see all these nodding heads. I say, I know that one. Yep, yep, done that, yep, know this one. Know that obsession, know that fantasy, know that preoccupation, know that judgment. It would give a sense of how universal, really, this mind is. I think I would have some confidence also in saying that probably we would all agree that there is little in life that can torment us so much as our own mind. Enemies and hardships, they can change with time. Sometimes we can even find, our ways, uh, find ways to distance ourselves from people or events that we have trouble with. We may even find ways to make peace with our enemies and hardships. They have beginnings and endings. But the one thing, one thing, can never divorce ourselves from is our own mind. Can torment us in our days and even into our dreams and nightmares. It can be a little relentless, this mind. It's thinking, distractedness, obsessions, worries, the endless trips we take down memory lane. The endless plans about the future. Rehearsing. Now we, I'm sure we all recognize this mind. Now this is the mind we are asked to understand. Ramana Maharshi. He once said, If the mind is happy, not only the body, but the whole world is happy. So one must first find out how to be happy oneself. Wanting to reform the world without understanding one's own mind is like trying to cover the whole earth with leather to avoid the pain of walking on stones and thorns. It's much simpler to wear shoes. Now, the path of mindfulness and wisdom really puts this understanding of the mind, the understanding of the heart, really at the forefront of the path. It also asks us to understand that this mind that can seem like an enemy, that can assail and torment us, is in truth the same mind that can be our deepest friend. Now, the mind of kindness is a mind that has made that journey from being difficult, something to be resisted, to something that has been befriended. The mind of kindness is really the mind that has been understood, accepted, and liberated, freed from torment and restlessness, and really born into calmness, clarity, and depth. Now, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the teaching of mindfulness, there is the encouragement to contemplate the mind as a mind, to know the contracted mind as contracted, to know the distracted mind as distracted, to know the happy mind as a happy mind, the concentrated mind as a concentrated mind, to know the unliberated mind as the unliberated mind, and to know the liberated mind as the liberated mind. The invitation to undertake that contemplation of the mind internally and externally 
to know the mind, all minds. There's also the encouragement in this teaching to understand the way in which our mind comes into being. How the mind of the moment is born. The conditions that give rise to the mind of the moment. And the conditions, too, that change that mind. And above all, in in the sutta, there is the encouragement to simply know there is mind. Now, I think it's very helpful to notice, to, to, to hear this, but I think it's also very helpful to read in this discourse what is not encouraged. That there's no instructions in this discourse to beat the mind into submission. There's no encouragement to judge the mind. There's no encouragement to despair or compare. There's no encouragement to resist the mind, subdue the mind, avoid the mind. But the wisdom of mindfulness, above all, to simply know there is mind. Now the mind, the heart, is spoken about in a number of different ways in this teaching. One way that the mind is spoken about is as being luminous, radiant, unshakable, serenity, without boundaries. The mind is also spoken about in, in terms of its components, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. An understanding that mental formations in this way actually includes all our thoughts, memories, mental states, emotions. Now before we go into understanding or perhaps exploring what we understand, what the mind is, I think it's very useful just to pause for a moment and for you all just to look or think for a moment about how you perceive your own mind. How you would describe what your mind is. It's a difficult question, isn't it? It's a difficult thing to pin down. Because we know the mind in so many different ways. I think one of the ways that perhaps is most common to experience the mind, and a a number of people have spoken about this actually in the groups over the week, is that the mind is really a storytelling machine. Hmm? It kind of occupies this role of the common commentator, constantly kind of describing the world and everything in it. And we see how from the moment we wake up in the morning to the time we go to bed, and actually often even right through our sleeping hours, We're in the process of telling a story about the moment. We tell a story about ourselves. You know, many stories, actually, about ourselves. We tell a story about other people. In fact, we're very prone to create stories on the basis of the most innocent encounters with objects and events. Hmm? I mean, you can hear a sound outside the meditation room, someone mowing the lawn, you know, and we've gone into a whole trip about, you know, what kind of lawnmower and where it came from and who's mowing it and why are they doing it during the sitting and da-da-da-da-da-da. It's just a sound. So we see that this kind of storytelling is constantly being stimulated within the mind. Now, if you just reflect on your mind today, I think it's probably also really obvious to us that our mind is really constantly in a state of change. Happy, happy mind, great, turns into sad mind. The mind seething with resentment turns into forgiving, generous mind. The mind that is lost in despair and feels hopeless Moments later is the hopeful, optimistic mind. These constant changes we experience in a single day, in a single hour, in a single sitting period. Sometimes we know our mind by its contents. 
the images or fantasies that are there, the memories, the judgments. Sometimes we know our mind by its activities, remembering, planning, rehearsing, reflecting. Sometimes we just know our mind has been very full. You know, it's said that the average person has 67,000 thoughts in a day. I don't know how anybody ever managed to count those, but um, even when we hear that number, we probably think we're above average. 67,000 doesn't seem too many. Sometimes we know our mind by the emotions, the reactions that are present. Sometimes we, we experience the the mind that can be so harsh, so critical, so judgmental, so competitive, or so belittling. But actually the same mind, you know, the same mind can then be so kind, so caring, so compassionate, so much empathy. We also actually, look, see, the mind is often pretty repetitive. And it can be creative and reflective. Now, to me, it's just so interesting. I mean, inevitably, right from the first day of this retreat, in one way or another, you've been contemplating your mind. You know, because everything is, you know, it's what you run up against every moment of the day. And, you know, sometimes our mind looks really interesting, and sometimes when we look really closely at it, it's actually pretty predictable. I mean, how many new thoughts have you had today? Really new thoughts. Thoughts you never had before. One? <laughs> Two? <laughs> I mean, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? How many times we have the same thoughts? Certainly, one thing we can be sure of our mind is very necessary pretty hard to find our way through this world without it. And in truth, our mind is very much a participant and a a necessary and important participant in making sense of this world and in understanding this world. Now, something else that I think is very crucial in this kind of mandala of reflecting on the mind is this really important piece is that we think of the mind as ourself. Say, so I am my mind, my mind is me. A very core aspect of who I am. Now, it is possible, and I just like to raise this possibility, possibility that this may be a case, and sometimes a very tragic case, of mistaken identity. And this is actually something that I would really that we can take into our practice, and I would really encourage you to take it into your practice. Is your mind yourself? Are you your mind? Just is something to reflect on. Now, I think that as we really do get a sense of the changing shape and climate of our mind moment to moment that we begin to understand that our mind such as we know it seems to exist in a state of potentiality that the shape and the climate of our mind is constantly changing like the weather sometimes lovely sometimes not so lovely sometimes calm sometimes agitated sometimes incredibly spacious and sometimes so cluttered. It's so interesting to me, we have a lot of expressions in English around the mind, but the one I love, I really love this expression, is when it usually comes out when we've, when we've kind of emerged from some really terrible mental storm or done something really foolish. And we say, I wasn't in my right mind. As if we were really sure what our right mind is. Now, when it starts to become clear that our mind exists in a state of potentiality, I think actually this is really wonderful news. Because it means that anything is possible 
within this mind, including the cultivation of and the discovery of the mind that is luminous and radiant, the serenity, the boundless, the kindness, the mind that is a friend. There's a short piece of a poem I'd like to read to you, which I think really speaks to this potentiality. Says the bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing, <clears throat> sorry, its loveliness. To put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely. Until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. I think what we are really learning to do in our meditation practice is to reteach our mind its loveliness. To reteach our mind its loveliness. To understand what some teachers really speak of when they, they refer to the mind that is beautiful, the mind that is joyful, the mind that is clear, the mind that is liberated. And I, I referred to this the other night, this sense of potentiality. And I'm going to revisit this again because I think it's very, very important. That used well, this mind is a raft to freedom. Used badly, this mind anchors us to suffering. The mind does the bidding of the wholesome and the unwholesome. The mind does the bidding of the fracturing and the healing. The mind does the bidding of the imprisoning and the liberating. The mind is the vehicle of ignorance and the vehicle of wisdom. Now, clearly, none of us are tormented by the mind that is luminous and radiant and serene. The mind that torments us is the mind that is confused, obsessive, difficult the difficult mental states of anxiety, depression, the tendency of the mind towards distractedness and fragmentation. And I think what most torments us is this lethal tendency held within our minds and expressed within our minds, the tendency towards harshness and judgment and blame and belittling that we can direct towards ourselves and that we can direct towards others. In fact, the tendency of aversion that we direct towards anything that we feel afraid of. Now, the Buddha never asked us just to push any of this away. This is a kind of human dilemma. He asked us to turn towards that mind. What, is, what he sometimes referred to as the wilderness of the heart. And that within that mind that can feel so tormented and so harsh, to really learn the lessons of kindness, to reteach that mind its loveliness. The kindness that can, with practice, even in a moment, transform the mind. And in doing so, transform the world. The kindness that is really at the root of a liberated mind. And I'm sure that we can all accept that the mind is indeed a process. Thoughts, memories, mental states, associations, in a constant process of change unfolding. I mean, you could try to maintain just one thought all day long. Couldn't do it. Try to maintain just one mental state all day long. One emotion all day long. It doesn't work. Some last a little longer than we'd like, mind you. We also discover that once we really begin to be mindful of our mind, 
which is what we're asked to do, that this mind is a composite. It's being shaped consciously and unconsciously, moment to moment, by a variety of different factors. I mean, if you take it an example, if you just think a thought about your own future, about an uncertain future, you know, maybe that's a point you're facing in your life. You don't know what's coming next. And the thought about that arises. Well, that thought in arising, it can bring in then memories, anxieties, associations, and then we have an anxious mind. It's so simple. You know, an anxious mind has been shaped by, that, by those different factors. Now, if you took a moment and just brought into your mind a thought about someone that you really care about, someone that you really love and feel close to, what happens? There's certain emotions that arise, images that arise, associations that arise. Are you of a happy mind? That will perhaps last for even a few moments until the next thought, the next memory, the next sense impression moves in. These, comp- these different factors endlessly shaping the mind. I spoke with someone not long ago who, you know this thing called speed dating? You know, we don't have time to develop relationships anymore, so we speed date. And I've never been, so I have no idea. It might be a very virtuous and wholesome and wonderful event, you know. But they told me about this event of speed day. It's quite a phenomenon, you know, like, like you keep moving around all these different people and you, you're kind of checking them out, you know, in the space of a, like a few minutes. There's a few minutes you're going to check this person out and be checked out, you know, to really see whether you've got a spark together, you know. And, and they told me that when they went to this speed dating thing, like they're rushing around this room, you know, checking all these people out. And I said, you saw the mind going through all these different things so fast. You know, hate, love, attraction, repulsion, you know, anxiety, craving. And it was like, you know, I thought, well, it's a kind of perfect sort of analogy of actually what often happens for us in our day, even without speed dating. (laughs) We don't need to do that. (laughs) And then the other quite extraordinary thing about our mind is how many uninvited guests appear. Probably a lot more uninvited guests than invited ones. I mean, if you think about today, how many thoughts that you had today did you actually choose to have? Extraordinary. I mean, even if you felt a bit down today, did you wake up this morning and think, great day to be depressed, you know, and do that today, you know, if you felt anxious, you know, woke up anxious today, you know. Did you, you intentionally do that? And yeah, I had a really great day to be fearful. You know, I'm going to do that today. It's uninvited, isn't it? So much it just seems to appear uninvited that plays a part in shaping our mind. And I think it's that piece, that the number of uninvited guests, that so often leads us to feel quite helpless and powerless and frustrated in the face of our minds until, and I must stress this, we only feel helpless until we truly begin to be mindful of our minds and to truly understand them. Now I want to look at the mind actually from the perspective of Buddhist psychology. And you know, from the earliest, really the earliest teachings of insight, there's this encouragement to unpack the concept of mind, to almost deconstruct the concept of mind, and to really look like what is this mind of the moment born of? Feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. Just bear those in mind. I'll give you some examples. Now, the feelings, actually, Rob spoke about this very well this morning. This, the, the Vedana, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the neutral. Now, what is, what is necessary for Vedana to arise? What is necessary is what is called contact. Contact is the way that we meet the world, inwardly and outwardly. The meeting together of the sense door and the sensory impression and the consciousness that arises with it. 
If I give you an example, many years ago I was teaching in the Australian rainforest, and it was pretty basic, rustic stuff, you know. In fact, I, I lived in the middle of the rainforest in a so-called hut. It was actually really a shack. They didn't have a door, and it didn't have electricity. And in the Australian rainforest, you know, bear in mind, Australia has the vast majority of things in this world that are out to eat us. So in the Australian rainforest, there's actually an incredible amount of wildlife and creatures, and actually really many of them are really not that benevolent. In fact, they're very unpleasant and threatening. So I would go to bed at night, and I would, and I would sleep on the floor. This is another factor. You know, no door, no lights, floor. You know, get that one together, you know. So I would go to buy mattress at night, and I'd lie down in the dark, and the sounds of the world would begin. And it was like my, my hut was a kind of passageway for every creature who lived in the rainforest, you know. So, you know, initially, you know, I mean, on a basic level, on a skeletal level, it's not a problem. There's my ears, there is sound, and there is consciousness of hearing. And at this point, it's, it's just hearing. It's not a problem. Now, then there would be feel, feeling and perception would actually pretty much arise together. The way of starting to identify those sounds. Claws on wood. Unpleasant. You know, pretty immediate connection. <laughs> Wild pig feral dogs, spiny anteaters, you know, whatever it's going to be. Now, from this, from this, feeling, perception, would arise associations, memories, and in this case, fear. <laughs> fear and resistance and aversion at times really pretty extreme terror. Now, sometimes this would be really accurate. You know, sometimes it would be an accurate perception. I have to take that into account. It's not like my world was always just make-believe. But sometimes it would be an accurate perception. You know, I'd turn on the flashlight, and there would be something pretty scary there. And then sometimes I'd turn on the flashlight, and I'd be in this state of terror. I'd turn on the flashlight, and it would be a cat. You know, one of the center cats that had come in to look for somewhere warm and cozy to sleep. So immediately, the change in perception, change in perception and feeling again together, a different formation, a different mind state would arise. You know, oh, that's so sweet. You know, there'd be tenderness, there'd be affection and welcome. This all happens so fast. Usually, we just get stuck at the concept. We say, I'm scared, I'm depressed, I'm happy. I'm lonely. Now, this process of creating the mind of the moment can happen through actually any of the sense doors, and I'm sure you've experienced this a million times today. The eye, the sight, the seeing, the nose, the smell, the smelling, the body, the sensation. Sensing. I mean, I'm sure you've felt, felt this a million times today, those combinations being the base of the mind of the moment. You know, you walk down the hallway prior to lunch, you know. There's the nose, there's the smell, there's the smelling, the perception comes in. Oh, it's garlic. Oh, fantastic. You know, I love Italian food. I fell in love in an Italian restaurant, a happy mind. You go to lunch, it's Will it? The disappointment, you know, the disappointment. Oh, I'm so unhappy. It's It's just happening all the time. The shaping of the mind moment to moment. Contact, feeling and perception, mental formations in the form of reactions and the consciousness of the moment. Now, these are the components of a mind engaged together in a process. Now, what the Buddha said about this, he said, what we feel, we perceive. What we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we tend to proliferate about. 
what we proliferate about becomes the inclination of the mind. What we feel, we perceive. What we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we tend to proliferate about. What we proliferate about becomes the inclination of the mind. Now, proliferation, of course, is just another word for preoccupation, for obsession, for the ruminations that can so grip and imprison our mind. The Buddha also put it a little bit differently. There's a thought then manifests as the word because this process doesn't stop with the mind. The thought then manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. Now in terms of the components of the mind, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, and in the terms of the way these components engage together, I think it's very important to understand that this, these components in this process is actually the same for a Buddha as it is for George Bush. It's the same for the Dalai Lama as it is for ourselves. As long as we have a mind, there will be a range, and a range of sense impressions. There will be contact. There will be feeling. There will be perception. There will be thought. None of these in any way is an obstacle to the liberated mind. None of these in any way is an obstacle to a mind of kindness. So then I think it's really helpful and perhaps really important to, to explore what is the difference between an unliberated mind and a liberated mind? What is the difference? What is the difference between a mind that is imprisoned by harshness and a mind that is genuinely imbued with kindness? What is the difference between a mind that feels imprisoned and a mind that feels very free? Now, one of the differences lies in what are called mental formations. Pali word for this is sankharas, sometimes translated as tendency. Now, in one way, we could say that everything that appears in the mind is a formation. Of course it is, a sankhara, you know, a thought, a mood, an emotion, a plan, a memory. These are all formations within the mind. Many of them are fleeting, aren't they? They just come, they just go, they arise, they pass of their own accord, and they're really no problem. Now, what we see about some of the formations in our life, in our mind, they're much more habitual. They're much more repetitive. They're much more embedded. They're much more rooted in confusion. They have a history and they have an identity. And they very much form part of our self-view. You know, when when we use the, the words I am, what we often do is we describe our most habitual tendencies. I'm an anxious person, I'm a lonely person, you know, I'm a fearful person, I'm an angry person. These habitual tendencies, or these latent tendencies, are actually part of the fabric of our personal story. Now, these more latent habitual tendencies most often appear in the form of fear or greed or aversion or judgment or anxiety, the source, actually, of most of our mental torments source of most of the torments of our heart that lead us to struggle with ourselves and the world they are the habitual tendencies that keep us locked in these very familiar patterns of reactivity and disturbance and they're very rarely kind 
Now, these latent tendencies, these repetitive tendencies, shape not only our mind, they can even shape the quality of our mindfulness in ways that's not always visible for us. You know, some people find themselves trying to use mindfulness as a way to annihilate themselves, to annihilate every thought or emotion that they don't like. Uh, some people use mindfulness as, again, I think I mentioned this the other day, as a more enlightened form of judgment. You know, oh, you know, I should be more peaceful, I should be more calm, etc., etc. Mindfulness can even be flavored by greed. Looking for a new experience, looking for a new signpost, looking for a better self, a more enlightened self, to be the best meditator in the world. Now, what are these latent tendencies? Well, actually, all they are is just tendencies or inclinations of the mind that have been repeated lots of times. That's all a tendency is. This is an inclination of the mind that has been repeated many times. It's similar, if you think of the, the analogy, if you go out to do your walking meditation and you choose a path, and you walk up and down that path a few times and then you leave it, well, the grass springs right back up again, doesn't it? Now, what would happen if over the period of a week or a month or a year you went back every time to the same walking path, walked up and down? Pretty soon it would, you know, leave a trace and then that trace would start to be a little hollow in the ground and then it would turn pretty soon into a ditch. Now, that's just what happens in the mind. What we frequently think about, we proliferate about, and it becomes the shape of, and the inclination of our mind. It becomes part of our personal description. I'm terrible, I'm hopeless, I'm anxious, I'm a failure. When was the first moment that you had that thought? You know, if you've had any thoughts like that today, when was the first moment you had that thought? And how many times have you had the same thought becomes like our default mode of reference? Now, with wisdom and with kindness, what we're learning to do is to ease the suffering and the torment of our own mind. Now, it's not difficult to see the torment in some of these latent tendencies. You know, it's not difficult for us to see that Obsession is a way of vandalizing our mind. It's not difficult for us to see that self-criticism, self-judgment, self-belittling is a way of, of brutalizing our heart. And that the self-views that are born of those tendencies are a direct way to contractedness. Now, in this teaching, we are endlessly encouraged to cultivate the pathways of kindness cultivate healing and liberation. What is really important is that the sankharas or the tendencies that lead to suffering are seen to lead to suffering. That's so important. I mean, it, it sounds obvious, but actually we can be so embedded in some of these tendencies that we, we don't see that they only have one outcome, which is suffering. You know, they don't have a different outcome. It's not as if, you know, like if you stand up and bang your head on the wall ten times, and you're not going to think it has a different outcome, do you, on the tenth time. It still hurts. Right? It's never going to feel good. It's just suffering. It's really so important to recognize what suffering is. Because if we can see that some of these latent tendencies lead only to suffering. That actually can be a real turning point for us. A key part in our motivation of learning to incline the mind in, down new pathways in new directions. Without that insight that this is just suffering, what do we do? We end up trying to explain those tendencies. You know, we dwell in their histories, where they came from, how we ought to fix them how we need to strategize around them. How about just saying, actually, this just leads to suffering. 
Now, despite how it may first seem, <laughs> I'd like to suggest is we actually really don't have a big repertoire of habitual tendencies. That's really good news. We actually don't have, no matter what our perception is, we don't have this vast range of habitual tendencies. If we look underneath all of our most repetitive and tormented stories, we see that basically they're embroidery upon three major latent tendencies. Greed or wanting. You know, the wanting of a better moment, a better mind, a better personality, a better life, a better relationship. The mantra of wanting that is built upon a sense of lack that leads to anxiety and agitation. So, the tendency of wanting is a big one. The tendency towards aversion is huge. Huge, 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 huge. Resistance, fear, blame, competitiveness, comparison, envy, judgment, all the offsprings of aversion. And the third big one is a tendency towards delusion. And that includes mistaking all these tendencies to be me. That's actually part of the delusion. You know, that's part of the confusion. Is that being lost in, in believing the, ident- the story of identification to be the truth. Heal this contractedness, we actually learn to bring into these habitual tendencies three primary wise intentions. Kindness, compassion, and renunciation. We learn again and again to incline the mind towards the end of suffering rather than towards suffering. To incline the mind towards the end of suffering. To incline the mind towards kindness and compassion. You know, not long ago I was teaching on a retreat and there was a, a woman on the retreat. You know, she, she said she'd had, you know, 40 years training in self-judgment. And she said, you know, she, she discovered that one of the things that she learned to do in her practice... That, you know, she said in the past, whenever her mind was moving, she was all thinking, thinking, thinking. You know, she was even using the practice as this dismissive way. And she said she went through this change, and she said when her mind was on these obsessive trips, she'd say, thinking, sweetheart. And it wasn't a kind of sentimentality or, you know, a, a kind of indulgence. It was actually a shift that she made in herself of really making a commitment to kindness in the midst of all things. In the midst of all things. It's it's making a commitment to friendliness. And where do we do it? Well, we do it actually in the midst of judgment, in the midst of aversion, in the midst of anxiety. We make the commitment to kindness. We learn the the lessons of compassion in the midst of harshness and blame. We learn to incline the heart towards just seeing the suffering of it. To incline the heart towards compassion. And in the midst of the suffering of obsession and rumination and dwelling, we are learning the lessons moment to moment of inclining our hearts towards renunciation, learning just how to let go. And in that moment of letting go, to know that moment of letting go is an act of freedom. First, we need to know the suffering. Second, we need time and time again to plant and to nurture the seeds of compassion, kindness, and renunciation. We have to appreciate this is a journey. It takes patience. Most of us have a much longer history much more training in the pathways of resistance, of blame, of clinging, of harshness, than we have a training in kindness and compassion and letting go. It takes patience. It is a journey. But moment by moment, the seeds that are planted moment to moment, those seeds take root. We nurture them. And they come into being. We are reteaching our mind its loveliness. 
we teach in our mind its loveliness. Now it is very, I think it is so important, you know, very often in our life and in our practice, we get very caught up in trying to uh, deal with the contents of our minds. You know, we don't like that thought, how to deal with this particular image or that particular memory or that particular story. Now, I really actually really, really want to say this very strongly. It's very important to address the underlying tendencies. Not to get caught in the contents of the mind but to really see the underlying tendencies of craving and aversion and clinging that are actually shaping the mind. Because if we don't really see those underlying tendencies, it, it's like, you know what it's like trying to do? It's like trying to clean up the lava from an active volcano. It's endless. To turn towards the underlying tendencies is almost to go to the root of ignorance and the root of delusion and the root of torment. And the Buddha spoke about so many different ways of learning to meet this mind, to cultivate what is wholesome, to learn to let go of what is unskillful, to learn to see the impermanence of these thoughts, these stories, these mental states, to learn to see their changes. And most of all, to cultivate a mind that is not imprisoned, a mind that dwells nowhere. And an 8th eight, eight century teacher, I, I love this, called he says, if your mind wanders away, don't follow it. Your mind will stop wandering all by itself. If your mind lingers somewhere, don't linger with it. Its search for a dwelling place will stop by itself. Whatever is past is past, so don't sit in judgment upon it. Thinking about the past disappears by itself. Whatever is in the future hasn't arrived, so don't direct your hopes and longings toward it. Thinking about the future will disappear by itself. Whatever is present passes in a moment. Don't, nour- don't, don't nourish any desire or aversion. The full awareness of a mind that dwells upon nothing is known as having a clear perception of your own true mind. A mind that dwells upon nothing is the mind of a Buddha. This is the mind that we are learning to cultivate. Moment by moment, through wisdom, through understanding, through knowing there is mind learning to liberate the mind to that kindness, compassion, and letting go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.